Well, greetings. My name is Deb Bull, and it is a privilege, again, to be here to share with you um, in this video on worthiness. We're on worthiness, part two. So I'm going to begin on page 118 in your syllabus. As Marcia so eloquently shared with us in the last video on how we all need to feel like we belong, we all need to have a sense of value and our worth, and we all need to feel competent. We need to belong. We need to feel like we are part of. We're not individuals stranded out here alone. We need to feel like we have value. And we remember that God did not redeem us so that we are worthy of his love. When he created us in the innermost being of our mother's womb, we had value and were worthy at that time. We were beloved at that time. And God has given us the ability to live life, to figure out, I don't know how to do that, but I think I can figure it out, or I don't know how to do that, but I know where to go to find the answers, to be competent. And we need all three of those woven into our lives to help us to have a good view of ourselves, a healthy self-esteem, to have those so that we look at ourselves the same way God looks at us. When we have those three, we can make a mistake and we don't beat ourselves up. We can say, I'm sorry, all without losing part of myself, all without feeling like I am a failure. I can make a bad choice because I know behavior can be changed. But a bad choice doesn't make me bad. It's not part of who I am. It was just a bad choice that I made. All of those work together to help us have a healthy self-image. And when I'm living out my healthy self-image, it allows me to set boundaries that I need to set. To live within a sphere and to live doing the things that I know I can do, stretching myself. And if I fail, try again. But a healthy self-image and a healthy self-esteem allows us that ability to live life and to uh, be accountable for our actions and what we do and our attitudes. So on page 118, there's a list of some healthy self-image or healthy self-esteem allows me to realize that, you know what, God is in each day and I can live each day with assurance and I'm going to have a good day. A healthy self-esteem allows me to be affirming. I can affirm others. I can lift them up. I can build them up. I can give them compliments. But it also allows me to affirm myself. I did a good job. A healthy self-image allows me to feel satisfied with my day. What did I accomplish today? Did I get a lot done? Did I get a little done? But it allows me to be satisfied and fulfilled from within. I don't have to depend upon others to satisfy, um, to tell me that I did a good job. It allows me to set reasonable goals. Now, I stretch myself. I do things that, ooh, I don't know. Can I really do that? Can I really say that? 
But a healthy self-image, a healthy self-esteem allows me to try things. And it allows me to set goals and fulfill them. It allows me to be outward focused. I don't have to just dwell on what's going on inside of me. I can be outward focused. And we know that when we're in the middle of doing prayer resolution sessions with somebody, that they tend to be more inward focused. Because that's where God wants them to be focusing in, is what's going on inside of them. But when I am healed and I have a healthy self-image, a healthy self-esteem, I can look outward and um, be more focused on others around me. I can see life as a challenge rather than an insurmountable difficulty. Yep, there's going to be some hard roads. There's going to be some struggles. There's going to be trials. But life is a challenge. It's an adventure. It's not a mountain that there's no way I'm ever going to get over the top of it. Nope, I can do it with God's help. It helps me make decisions based upon true assumptions. I, because I am looking at life not through distorted lenses, but clearly I can make decisions based upon truth and true assumptions. And finally, it helps me to establish healthy relationships with people, um, even those I don't like. Because I have, I look at myself the way God looks at me. I can learn to love them because that's what God tells me to do. And so I can establish those healthy um, relationships with people that I like and people that I don't like. You know, having a good self-esteem isn't mean that I'm proud, that I'm full of pride at the expense of others. It means that I am looking at myself the way my Heavenly Father looks at me. I see myself realistically, the way God sees me, and I accept that. My flaws and all, I accept it, and I believe that this is who God made me to be when I am healthy. And again, remember, God didn't change my spiritual state so that he could love me. He didn't redeem me to make me worthy of love. He has loved me since the beginning of time and since I was created in my mother's womb. Remember, the Bible tells us to love your neighbor as yourself. You have to love yourself to be able to love your neighbor. If you don't love yourself, you can't love another. We do know that how we view ourselves affects how we view God and others. And that's why we want to help our fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, to have a healthy self-esteem. So how do I know if somebody is struggling with self-esteem issues? I've been talking to them as a safe other for a while. And how do I know? if there are issues. And as you listen to them share their stories, you're going to begin to pick up patterns of behavior or statements like, um, I'll never be good enough for them, or they'll never love me. Nobody wants to know who I am. Statements that are negative about themselves or about others, 
or you see a pattern of behaviors beginning to be established. And so when you begin to look at those, see those, and make notes, again, we've talked about the fact that you're writing a lot of things down that the hurting one is saying. And then you might say, ooh, is that a lie? Uh, that's a self-image, self-esteem issue. Put a little check by it so that we go back and we explore it later to find out if it really is. So we're going to go through um, some indicators of unhealthy self-esteem. Now, the key word here is indicators. Just because somebody may be critical doesn't mean that it's because they have a poor self-image. But when we hear somebody talk about being critical and we see that as a pattern, we need to explore what is the source of that? Why are they critical all the time? And is it a self-esteem issue? Is it something that somebody has taught them? And we need to go through and deal with it. But it just means that this is something we are going to explore. And we're going to look at um, to see where did it come from? Did somebody teach them that or what? Um, overarching, we need to remember that a healthy self-image is looking at ourselves the way God sees me. And when I don't see myself the way God sees me, then I need to ask the question, where did this come from? Did somebody teach it to me? Is it a lie that I have believed about myself? Did um, something happen to me that made me start to believe these lies? And what you're going to find is that these, a lot of these indicators are based upon foundational lies that we have believed about ourselves. And so um, last week, um, Barbara shared with us about lies and how do we get rid of lies. And we're going to build upon that in many ways as we go through these indicators um, together. This is not always easy. We need God's help in sorting some of this out. Now, one thing to remember is not everybody is going to have self-esteem issues. Their parents and their teachers and those that were, that they respected spoke words positively into them. And they have developed a good, healthy self-image, how they view themselves. And you may not find these. Not everybody, anybody that, not anybody that has a problem with their self-image is going to have all of them. Some of them overlap. Some of them go together. But these are just things that people that have worked with hurting ones over the years have found are some of the indicators of unhealthy self-esteem. And when you hear them in the stories, you make notes because these are the ones you're going to dig into and um, explore in greater detail. So um, the other thing, so there's two ways we see these indicators. Is One is the person that you're working with, the hurting one, actually shows some of these indicators. I have to be in control you realize that they have to be in control. The other way you see them is you're working with a hurting one who lived with the person who always had to be in control or was always critical. And how did that affect them? And how did that hurt them? 
And so you're going to find it both ways. Both the hurting one um, has these indicators or they lived with somebody who had these and how it played out in their life. So on page 119 in your syllabus is the beginning of the list. Um, I'm going to go through some of them. Um, The first one I'm going to talk about is the person who needs to be in control. If I control the situation, then it helps me to look good, which means I need to control others. As long as I'm controlling, nobody's going to know how inadequate I really am. I might use anger, tears, manipulation, bullying, or some other way to get people to do what I want them to do because I have to be in control. For example, a mom wants her daughter to go to the same college she went to, belong to the same sorority that she went to. She wants her daughter to experience the same college life she did. The daughter doesn't want to go there for whatever reason. Maybe the what she wants to study She can't do a good job of it at the college where her mom went to. But for whatever reason, the daughter has decided that realistically that that college is not the best for her and she wants to go somewhere else. So she explains this to her mom. But her mom is insistent. Nope, you're going to go to my college. So her mom uses tears. She uses um, bribes, promises, anything to get her daughter to agree to go to her college. Doesn't matter to the mom if the daughter's happy, because of course she's going to be happy. She's going to be experiencing the same college experience I had. But this is wrong. The mother is sinning when she is doing this to her daughter. So if you're working with the daughter, she has to accuse her mother of using these tactics um, against her and then confess any part that she also had. Then there are people who are critical or who use shaming. Um, They're critical of themselves and they're critical of others. A lot of times you see this in being critical of others. They compare themselves to others. And for me to be okay, I have to be better than you are. If it appears that you are good, then I'm bad. So you have to be bad, so I'm good. So I'm going to criticize you to get you down to my level so that I can be good. A husband who criticizes his wife um, for everything that she does. She doesn't cook right. She doesn't clean right. He does that so he can feel superior and say, I could do a better job myself is what he's saying. But does he do it? No, he just criticizes his wife for her actions. The wife begins to feel like she can't do anything right. A mom criticizes her daughter and shames her daughter in front of others. Well, I'm just trying to motivate her, trying to get her to do better, mom says. So she criticizes her daughter's daughter or shames her in front of others. Maybe it works for a little while, but after a while that daughter begins to feel like, I can't do anything right, so why try? She quits school. She becomes a hippie. You know, it backfired on mom. But having that constant criticism wore the daughter down to the point she felt like she couldn't do anything right. 
So she checked out of life. Now, when you're critical of self, you're going to hear things like, I'm never good enough. I couldn't do that well enough to allow others to see what I've done or to hear the words that I said. Their sense of value is broken because my um, opinions are not important. Nobody wants to hear what I have to say. This can come from a parent, from a teacher, a classmate, anyone that the person respects. If they aren't respected for their opinion, they'll feel like they've been criticized and they don't measure up. We all have opinions and we have to have the ability to disagree because your opinion is different than mine. It doesn't make mine right and yours wrong, but we have different opinions. Then there's the friend you wish you had never met that are consuming. These are the ones that latch on to you and smother you. They don't let go. They feel like they can't live life, so they need you to live it for them. There's something in their being that just says, I can't do it, so I'm dependent upon you to do it. They feel incapable of living life, and so they cling to others and vicariously live their life through them. But these are the ones that drain your emotions. You just feel exhausted after you've been with them because they use up your time, your energy, your resources. I had a friend at school, and I don't, when I was in college, and I don't know if she was trying to live the college life vicariously through me or if she was just one of those people who needed to have a lot of affirmations from others. But she was not in college. I had met her through the church I went to. And she just, um, she would work and then she'd come around and want me to give her time to do things with her, to talk with her. Well, I had studies to do. And it was hard. She didn't respect any boundaries that I had set up and said, well, this is my study time. This is the time I could give to you. Um, and it got to the point that where my dorm room was, I could see when she came from the parking lot. And I would hide because I didn't have the time nor the energy to deal with her. Now, was that right? Probably not. When I went through my things, I had to accuse her of being clingy, of not respecting my boundaries, of always wanting my time and my energy. In some ways, I do feel like she was trying to experience the college life through me because she had gone to a junior college for a year and was now working. And then I had to confess my part, that I did not love her the way Jesus wanted me to love her. Yes, Jesus wanted me to set boundaries with her, but I shouldn't have been hiding at times from her. So there was accusation and there were confessions to deal with on that one. Then there are people who are judgmental. Now, they judge themselves and they judge others by a standard. But this is not a normal standard. This is a standard they have set up. And nobody can ever reach that standard because that standard is constantly moving. 
So the bar is constantly being raised. There's the belief that I'm always lacking. I'm always a failure. Because see, here's the standard and I didn't meet it. Because it was out of reach. They kind of have self-fulfilling prophecy, I think, sometimes. Because they say, see, I can never do anything. But what they're attempting to do is way out of reach, way beyond what their abilities might be. Again, these are not bad people, but they just have bad behaviors that we need to deal with. Now, depression is a hard one because not all depression has a spiritual reason for it. There are many people who are depressed because of physical changes in their brain and chemicals in their brain. So when you're dealing with somebody who sees themselves as a victim, who feels a failure, they feel hopeless, helpless, they withdraw, they can never get anything done, um, they wallow in self-pity, we need to investigate what's the source. Is it spiritual or is it physical? If you do find things in their life that have added to this that you need that they need to take care of and the symptoms of depression are still there then maybe they need to seek medical help and sometimes it goes the other way people that have sought medical help and been put on meds turns around that it was something within them there was a girl who became depressed after she broke up with her boyfriend and she showed these symptoms of depression. Her parents took her to the doctor. They put her on meds. The symptoms alleviated a little bit, but not much. It wasn't until several years later that she went through the PR process and broke the bonds with that ex-boyfriend. And her symptoms disappeared. So depression is a hard one. Lots of prayer. Lots of work to see. Is it spiritual? Or is it physical? Then there are those people that are disrespectful. I'm not okay, so therefore you can't be okay. So I'm going to disrespect you to make sure you're not okay. For me to survive, I have to be okay. So you can't be worth anything because if you're okay, I'm not okay. And it, a lot of times, leaves the other person feeling um, worthless, feeling belittled, insecure, when you have somebody who disrespects you all the time. It's all intertwined, as you can see. Um, so if you feel, if you're working with somebody who feels worthless or belittled, where did it come from? Where did they get this message? They need to accuse that person of not respecting them, of saying that they were wrong all the time, of poo-pooing their ideas and actions. And in their accusation, they accuse the other person of their actions, but not of making them feel belittled. That was something they did themselves. And that's part of the confession. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. When you can't love yourself, it's hard to love your neighbor. And you don't show respect. 
Then there's the person who shows a lot of anger. Um, and it's anger that doesn't fit the situation. It just seems like it was such a little thing, but they really exploded in anger. Um, where does that anger come from? Why do they feel like it's okay to respond with that much anger? When you are working with somebody who lives with a person that is angry all the time, you're going to find them living in fear, feeling like they always have to walk on eggshells because they never know when that other person is going to get angry. And they do everything they can to try to make sure that that person is, um, that they do what that person wants them to do so that they don't get angry. So if you're working with a person that's angry all the time, they need to confess their anger and how that has affected those around them. But also, where did it come from? Who taught them? Was it just a pattern they learned from their parents or from a sibling? But where did the sibling get it? So you need to dig and find out what happened and allow the Holy Spirit to show them where the anger comes from then there are those who constantly need approval. People pleasers. Whatever they do has to please others. That's where I get my self-worth is when others say that I'm okay. Others say, hey, Deb, that was a great job. Because I'm thinking that was lousy. I never do anything right. But they need others to tell them. So they're also going to be second-guessing themselves and saying, now, how do I do this so that my husband will be pleased? Or how do I do this so that my parents will be pleased? You hear about those who were never able to please their parents. But that's what they're trying to do is just find some acceptance from their parents. They can't say to themselves, you know what? I did a good job. I feel good about what I just did. Approval has to come from others and then I'm okay when approval comes from others so we worked with a hurting one who had the need to be affirmed by others when she wasn't affirmed by others she believed she wasn't included and the lie that she had believed was I'm not good enough I have believed I am inadequate not quite enough to be accepted. The need for acceptance, adequacy, and inclusion has to be filled by loved ones and friends. So after she broke that lie and she asked the Holy Spirit, she asked God for a truth. The truth was, I'm not good. I am good enough. I am smart enough. And doggone it, God loves me. And that is enough. And then she began to realize that this lie also was blocking her from hearing the Holy Spirit because she believed, I'm not good enough to hear the Holy Spirit. So we took care of that secondary lie. And out of the truth came, I am adequate. I can hear the Holy Spirit. He's, God says, I made you. You are mine. I made you good enough. And the hurting one said, I am valuable to him. Then there are those people who always have to be right. Don't you? Don't they frustrate you? 
you know somebody like this. It's never a win-win situation. They have to win. You have to lose. Even if they're wrong, they're right. We can't have different opinions. Nope. Mine has to be right and yours has to be wrong. And it's hard because they always have to be right. Winning and being right makes them feel like they are worthy. When we tie our value to being right or wrong, it's a sin. It's a very destructive behavior. And when a hurting one lives with a person who has to be right all the time, it may lead them to a lack of confidence. They have a feeling they can't do anything right because they're never right. And that's the negative effect that living with somebody who always has to be right. So you see, you're going to be working with both sides of the coin here. The person who has that attitude and needs to confess it and ask for forgiveness for the ways they have hurt others because of that belief. But also, where did that belief come from? Who taught them? They always had to be right. Accusing that person um, of teaching them that or of whatever the incident is and forgiving them and then confessing that they picked up and believed that they always had to be right, that they believed that lie and asking God to break that lie. Then there are those who... um, just like having to get their affirmation from others, are performance-oriented, which means that I have to be doing something to be worthwhile. Um, This is the person that's so busy working at church because that's how God finds value in them is because they're doing things for him, that they may neglect other parts of their life that God wants them to. They're always struggling for acceptance and to be found valuable. If I succeed, I'm valuable. If I don't succeed, I'm not valuable. I may hate myself. God will love me when I become a missionary, when I become a pastor. If I teach a Bible study, then God will love me. Or you fill in the blank. We all have those ways that we feel like God will love us more if I. Nope. God loves you. The way you are. He's loved you since he created you. Yes, God does want us to do our best. He does want us to um, do things for his glory. But that's not what he based our value on. He based our value on you because he created you. So a hurting one that we worked with Um, had believed the lie that to be a good Christian, I must be in the Word and pray every day. Okay, now why is that a lie? Because I must be in the Word and pray every day. Do we ever miss days? Does that make us a bad Christian? Because she set unexpected, unrealistic goals for herself. It just made it so that she had a hard time fulfilling any goal. Um, Schoolwork fell behind. She had a hard time completing assignments in her college courses because she believed that I'm a failure because I didn't live up to reading my Bible and praying every day. Why make rules? 
Why have goals? I'm not going to fulfill them anyway, was the attitude that we picked up on. So after she broke the lie and prayed, the truth came as, I'm not perfect and I don't need to try to be, for God loves me and has accepted me. And once she started living with that truth, she found herself able to set realistic goals and able to complete them and stretch herself. But she was able to complete them because she knew she wasn't perfect, but God still loved her the way she was and loved her for who she was. Then there are those who make poor decisions. It just seems like they struggle to make a good decision. Everything they decide is, it it just goes bad. They can't make a good decision. Well, most of the time these decisions are based upon um, false assumptions. They're, They're the sand, not the rock they're building their house on. They're building their house on the sand. Um, They don't go about intentionally making decisions based upon false assumptions, but that's what they seem to draw on. Um, And so they perceive themselves as not being able to make a good decision. So therefore, I'm not going to make a decision. I'm going to have somebody else make the decision. And then if it goes wrong, I can blame them. That's the attitude. Again, self-fulfilling prophecy. I can't make a good decision. See, I made this good decision. I made this decision. It was bad. And therefore, all my decisions are bad. Where did that come from? Where did they find that? And help them to confess, to accuse and confess. All right. The next one, lack of confidence, is one that you'll find probably fairly often, maybe. Um, And as you see, again, some of these are the same ideas that we've talked about. My thoughts aren't worth sharing, so I don't talk. I never speak out. They may show a victim mentality. Um, They're not willing to take responsibility for the decisions they make. Somebody else can make them. Because God didn't give me the ability to um, share my thoughts and to have good thoughts. Well, God did make them valid and with the ability to speak out. But somewhere along the line, somebody squelched that. And they need you need to talk about it to see if the Holy Spirit will reveal who it was or what the incident was that made them to believe they couldn't talk out. And have a lack of confidence. I can't take risks because I'm always a failure. If I fail, I'm a failure. So therefore, I'm not going to take any risks. Um, They can't separate the behavior from who they are. So it's very hard for them to take risks. Well, God, there are some risks that God wants us to take. And we have to have the confidence to be able to know. We are competent. He gave us the ability to live life or to figure out who to go to for help. Do you know a braggart? Someone who's always bragging about themselves and the things they've done and puffing up and 
building up. You've heard the story three times, and every time the story gets a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger, because that's how they hide their inadequacy. They figure if I brag and I bring attention to myself, nobody's going to know how inadequate I really am. Now, we know as Christians we're not supposed to brag. So, I'm not bragging. I'm just giving God praise for what he's done for me and building it up and building it up. Every time you hear about that test or trial, it gets a little bit worse. They have the feeling that I'm valuable because somebody's paying attention to me. If they saw themselves the way God saw them, they wouldn't have to brag. They would know that they had a lot of worth and a lot of value and they belonged because of who God created them to be. Now, there's also the opposite. Those who have a backhanded way of bragging and saying, I'm worse than everybody else. I'm never any good. I can never do that. No, mine is the worst one out there. Look at my painting. It's the worst one out there. It's kind of a way of bragging, but in a negative way. But that's also a sin. Then there are those who can never say, I'm sorry. It's always somebody else's fault. When they do err, they've got a story behind why they made a mistake, but they can never say, I'm sorry. Because to admit I made a mistake is to be weak. And weakness is not to be tolerated. Now, there's a few others that um, have come up. Um, One is the perfectionist. This is the one, again, that I always have to, not only do I always have to be right, but I always have to do things right. And so do you. You cannot make any mistakes. You have to do things exactly the way I think they should be done, and therefore they're going to be done right. Um, We cannot tie our value to perfectionism. We're not perfect. Um, That's not going to come till the other side when we get into heaven that we will see perfection. But it's when we hate ourselves for not being perfect that we come into the problem. Yes, God wants us to do our best. Anything worth doing is worth doing well. But we have to have mercy and grace for those who don't do it the same way we do it. If I feel like I have to be perfect, it's hard to enjoy God's abundant life because it never is up to my standard. Do you see how some of these all intertwine? And to the person who lives with a perfectionist, they won't accept me unless I am perfect. And it causes a lot of tension. It puts a lot of stress on a relationship when someone is a perfectionist and they expect you to be the same way. We have to have grace and and extend mercy to our fellow beings. Then there's the overachiever. This is the one who just has to prove their competence and value by doing extraordinary things. This is above performance-based. This is just, I mean, these are monumental events and huge things that they have to show that they are capable of doing. The goals a lot of times are unrealistic, but they're going to try and they're going to do it just to prove an impossible point. 
instead of going after something that they know God wants them to do, they just try to overdo it. And then there's the opposite, the underachiever. The one who says, I'm not good at anything. I'm not going to do anything. So, then there are those that always take the blame. That's me. It's always my fault. If something went wrong, it was my fault. Well, that's not true. It's not always my fault. But even if they weren't wrong, they accept being wrong. Because that's probably the role that they have been in all their life. And there are things like eating disorders, anorexia, because somewhere along the line they said acceptance and worth is equated to body image. If I, I am healthy, if I don't weigh anything, or you know, my weight is very low, or weight where down here, and if I am not valuable if I am overweight. Then you have the bullies, the cowards, the rebels. And when you have somebody that you realize is a rebel, is it an authority issue with rebellion? Or is it because they have very low self-worth, that they rebel against society for who they feel like they are? Fearful, paranoid, abusers, sex offenders, sexual deviants, an incompetent leader or teacher, those who emotionally distance themselves, shut down, isolate. All of these can be indicators that there is an unhealthy self-esteem that they're working with. And let's see, is that what it is? Can we ask the Holy Spirit to guide us in our conversation so we can find out where it came from? Because that's not who God created them to be. It's not who God created us to be. So there are some common attitudes, and these are listed on page 120 and 121 of your syllabus. I am unlovable. I am unacceptable. I'm worthless. I have to earn my place. I can't do anything right. And I'm helpless. I'm a victim. So these thoughts and attitudes fall under foundational lies. And again, we don't deal with these at the very beginning. We wait until we've cleared out all the other garbage in their life, all the other sin that they've had to confess or to acute hurts and wounds they've had to accuse others of. And then they can begin to see themselves the way God sees them. And they can begin to work upon some of these um, lies that they have believed about themselves. Lies that they have believed about themselves. Now, I'm going to turn it over to Ted, who's going to continue with the sources of self-esteem. Thank you so much for your time. Okay, this is the discussion on sources of self-esteem, worthiness two. 
Hello, and welcome to a continuation of uh, Worthiness. We're on page 121 in your syllabus. We're looking at sources of self-esteem, sources of self-esteem. When uh, we look at the sources of self-esteem, we recognize that there are three avenues or three uh, sources that we use to help define our value uh, for ourselves. And some one of those is the outer world around us. One is the inner world within us. And the other, the last is the spiritual world, um, God and Satan. And we're going to be talking about those things now. I remember uh, <clears throat> most children, you know, um, when they are born into the world, they don't uh, have anything but a sense of almost entitlement. They cry. They want attention. They look for everything. They have a lot of self-esteem. They have a high amount of self-esteem. Here I am. It's almost like they go, ta-da, here I am. Welcome me, welcome me. Here, now feed me. Change my diapers, do all those things. I remember when our first child was born, I was the one who called his name out because we didn't know if we had a boy or a girl, didn't want to know. And I said to my wife, who I think was paying attention at the moment, I said, it's Eric, it's Eric, because I saw that it was a boy. And so I knew it wasn't Elizabeth, the name she had picked out from before she had any reason to think she would be a mother. But... I, in exclaiming, it's Eric, also heard him profess his his uh, entry into the world with his first cry. And immediately I went, oh God, what do I know about being a father? What do I know about being a good father? Help me, Father, to be wiser than I am. That was my prayer in the delivery room not long after Eric was born. The front line of where our esteem comes from is in the outer world. And generally, it's our parents. If healthy de development takes place within the home, there's a good chance of good responses to the outer world, or to the inner world, and to the spiritual world. But, if there is distortion in the family unit, there's a good chance that there will be distortion in our inner world and in the spiritual world. We came into the world, ta-da, with acceptance. We were lovable. We were valid, competent. And we were able to give love to our parents. Oh, thank you. I feel comforted now. And we were able to receive love from our parents. We came with arms wide open. And that is just a great thing. But not everybody has had those experiences in the outer world. Their family situation may not have been good. One of the clients I worked with as a physical therapist was a soldier who had been marched into the nuclear fallout in the southwest of the Americas, uh, during the testing of nuclear weapons. How did he feel about himself? He recognized an injustice. He recognized harm that had come to him. 
How did he feel about his service? Another person that we uh, have had experience with grew up in a home where her mother worked away from home during the week, far away from where she lived. And on the weekends, her mother came home to spend her money in drunkenness and in partying and carousing. She never knew her biological father. Her stepdad had molested her. She was a, a woman who developed, her, her breasts developed early and quickly and were notable in the eyes of her stepdad and others. And as a result, her understanding of love was that it was about my sexuality. That's when I am close to people. That's when I am loved by people in her definition of love. And as a result, in her 40s, she had had many liaisons, not only before she was a believer, but after she was a believer and after she was married. And she was working on those things with deep regret. And yet the issue was how she looked at herself how she had come to see herself as having to be needing, required to be sexual in order to be loved. So, what is real love? That's a great question. Many times, we have to acknowledge that our understanding of what real love is can be distorted. It can be wrong. It can be not what God uh, would say about us. We confuse the conditional love that our parents provided to us and places where they didn't accept our, us and our behavior. We confuse that with real love, uh, the kind of agape love, the kind of love that's unmerited that God provides to us. So we have a false definition of who we are, of self-esteem, of what love means. It's distorted because of our experiences. <clears throat> Oftentimes, uh, we think something's wrong with me. The woman I just mentioned um, couldn't understand why she kept finding herself in these uh, sexual relationships with men from work uh, when she knew better. What is the source of this? Something must be wrong with me. I need to change. I'm not okay. She was telling herself that she was the problem. And the problem was her belief system. It was the problem was inside. And we have to understand that from in the first five or six years of our life, we are forming and kind of cementing in place our understanding of who we are and how we relate to the world. At five or six years of age, generally before we start school, we are pretty much locked in to what we think, what our belief system is about us. It matters what kind of family situation we had. Were we uh, an unwanted child? And how did that affect how I look at myself? 
Were we adopted? Did that affect how I look at myself? Were we born out of wedlock but stayed with our parents? Did one of our parents leave the home and we only had one parent? Did that parent struggle with raising us and other children? We have all of these different experiences. And so when we listen to someone talk about their life experiences and their understanding of themselves, we're listening for their belief systems. We're listening to you and what you believe about yourself. It would be nice if in the spiritual world, which we'll be getting to, if when we are saved, it just all evaporated. But the consequences of the things that we've experienced in our outer world live with us many times for a very long time and it's kind of like um, they're embedded within us we have muscle memory uh, I think Deb might have used the example of me as a physical therapist you know someone fixing a hip but still having a limp even though they had a good hip they have to unlearn the, the wrong walk and that is so often the case so how we perceive ourselves based on the outer world depends on how we're, we were treated, how we were trained. Did we have good training, poor training? How we saw those close to us relate to other people. What are their inner relationships with other people? How do they handle conflict? How do they handle joy? Do they all of these things? How our especially how our parents related to other people? And if we grew up in the church, how did they? relate there? Was it healthy, unhealthy? And then, of course, how our parents viewed us. How our parents viewed us. Well, my prayer when Eric was born was a recognition that I really didn't know much other than what my parents had done. And I kind of knew that there were some things that I'd wanted to do differently. But I kind of recognized that I didn't know what those things entirely were and how they were going to flesh out. And I did not raise my children completely properly with the wholesomeness that God would have intended for them. I've had to apologize to them along the way. They are now adult children and they are now uh, dealing with their own children and they are a little more understanding of the difficulties that I had. But it doesn't take away the reality that they have had their own struggles as well and the reality that I contributed to some of their struggles uh, currently because of my own shortcomings. So, as children we enter the world in the great Tada and we say here I am let's party and um, we believe we're acceptable, that we belong to these people that are our parents, and we are making that bond, and, and we feel that we're lovable, and that we are valuable, and that we can demand attention of them. But if our parents are never satisfied, quite satisfied with us, if we never meet their expectations, if we don't give them another, if we don't, 
if we don't seem to act in the way that they want us to act in front of other people and so they reprimand us a lot, um, we might think that we don't belong, that we're not valuable, that we're incapable of living life. We're programmed then for low self-esteem from the outer world. It makes us very hard to accept the truth that we are loved and accepted by God. That he died for us even in this state. That we are competent to God in God's eyes and of worth to God. So in this outer world we will have our parents and our grandparents and our step-parents, relatives, teachers, pastors, close family friends, close personal friends, spouses, Everything that happens to us by those outside ourselves is part of the outer world. And we, they help define who we are, and we're going to be listening for what the hurting one is saying about that. Now we're going to talk about the inner world. The inner world is kind of our senses. These are, this is what I am given who I am, and some of that's unique. I mean, okay, I'm a male, and there are lots of other males in the world. I'm bald, and there are other bald people in the world. I can wear glasses, there are other people. Okay, but there are unique things that have to do with my experiences as a physical therapist, as a Christian, in the places that I've lived, and the environments I've had, the traumas that I've experienced. Those are things that um, I have experienced that you have not experienced. And so, the inner world is where God is holding me accountable, not those outside of me, but he's holding me accountable for uh, the choices that I make, the judgments that I have about this, that, and the other, the decisions that I make, the beliefs that I hold, the attitudes that I demonstrate, the actions that I show, the words that I use and the responses that I have um, that are within me. He holds me responsible for what he gave me. He made me in his image. He made you in his image. He holds us responsible for how we manage our senses, our nerves, our brain, our capacity to learn. He expects us to grow. Put off the old self. Put on the new self. Be transformed by the, in the renewing of your mind. Process words. He knows that we need to learn. And he knows that in order to do that, we need to be able to interact with the world around us in ways that are healthy. We should be able to do that. Not that the world outside of us is always going to be healthy. Absolutely not. Oh boy, absolutely not. But how I respond to that as a believer, as a person, uh, he ha holds me responsible for my responses to the world. He wants me to interact with the world. You, go, make disciples. He wants me to interact with the world. Now, God doesn't hold me responsible. Well, I'm sorry, I left a couple things out. We, I have abilities and talents and gifts that are uniquely mine. 
I painted houses in my uncle's business as a, a youth. I have a skill there that not everybody has. I'm a physical therapist. Not everybody is. I have some physical skills and some aptitudes that are unique to me. And there are, at age 69, there are some handicaps, not real obvious ones, but there are some physical things, wear and tear of my body that have come because I've been a physical therapist, etc., and other just normal aging things that I'm noticing more and more, and I'm responsible for how well I take my own medicine by exercising and taking care of myself and protecting my joints. Now, I have a, a story to tell you about a man who didn't have all his physical capacities that I met as a physical therapist. And, you know, and God doesn't hold us accountable for what he didn't give me. Um, you know, we don't all, um, we are, some of us have congenital issues that we got from birth, you know, and others of us have acquired some handicaps. God doesn't expect a person who lives in a wheelchair to be up and walking necessarily. Although as a physical therapist, I often heard that people that had the least likelihood of walking right away would want, that was their big goal, was to walk. And sometimes the only thing that I could do to get them to focus on the earlier steps was to have them attempt to get up and walk. And they couldn't. But I have to tell you about this fellow. I'm going to call him Louie. And I'm going to call him Louie because that's his name. That's all I'm going to say. But Louie, he was uh, a man who I met in a long-term care facility. He had lost the lower part of his right arm and right leg. He had lost those, I believe it was in a landmine accident when he was a soldier. And so he didn't have the lower part of his arm and he didn't have the lower part of his right leg. And then he had a stroke on top of that that affected his left side. <laughs> he literally didn't have a leg to stand on. He couldn't run his left leg. And his left arm, he, he could control poorly, poorly. And the stroke had taken away his ability to, to converse, which is often the case with a stroke affecting the left side. And so about all he could say was his name. And anything anything you asked him, he would say, Louis, 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 Louis. That was all he could say. And uh, But he was just a decent man. He had a good spirit. i got to tell you, did he have good self-esteem? You decide after you hear the rest of the story. One day, I was helping him out of his wheelchair Again, didn't have a right leg, left leg not working. I transferred him from his wheelchair to the mat, and I had my arms around his chest with a belt, and I laid him down on the mat. And I got up to go get some exercise equipment, but I couldn't move. I mean, I was, I was stuck. And what had happened, he had pinned my left hand between his partial arm, his right arm, he had pinned my left hand in there and he was holding it tight and he wouldn't let me go. And I looked at him and I said, Louie! And he just smiled at me like, 
Gotcha. Gotcha, Ted. And, oh, we roared in laughter. We roared in laughter. Here was a man who had lost part of his arm and leg, had had a stroke, had lost some speech, who um, had lots of reasons for me to pity him, but he didn't pity himself. And I just think of him as a man who, in the inner world, still saw himself as having the ability to be funny, humorous, pull a joke, prank people. He was expressing his humanness, even in his limited situation. Now, those are things that we hear as we move into a person's life. We hear more and more of how they believe about themselves. Not just from their outer world experiences, but from their inner world experiences. How they, what they believe about themselves. Some people believe that they are victims, that they will always be victims. Some people believe that there's nothing lovable about them. So, we can, because of our choices, not just because of what happens to us, but because of the choices we make, the evaluations we make, the judgments we make about ourselves and our place in the world, we can feel the anger and hurt of feeling rejected, and that response is legitimate. It's not wrong. It's not wrong, categorically. What is wrong is when we hang on to those things and don't forgive not only those things outside of us, but those things inside of us that need forgiving, that are not God's way. And we hold that judgment and anger and hurt until it becomes hatred of others, of self, and, as we'll get to, to God. We wish somebody was dead, or we have bitterness about that. Bitterness about ourselves. We wish we were dead, that, dead, that I didn't have to cope. You're suicidal. That's not God's plan for you. I'm sorry for the experiences that you have and the judgments that you feel. I really am, even from this distance in a webinar. Uh, but it's not what God wants for you. And we need to be looking the way God does, looking at ourselves the way God does. Louis, Louis, Louis was the man who exemplified to me that when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. And so, he and others, need to, we need to understand that accepting the truth is something we do in our mind. But believing the truth is something we do in our heart. Remember, God wants us to love the Lord with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so, uh, believing the truth is done in our heart. Accepting the truth is done in the mind. Now, we can say, oh, I'm loved. I know I'm loved. But not believe it. Accept when this happens. Accept with these people. Accept in this situation. 
If the messages of our outer world are negative, it makes us very it makes it very hard for us to accept that we're lovable, acceptable, worthy, and competent. And in this inner world, we're making our own inner appraisal of ourself. If we can't accept the truth from God about ourselves, then it matters very little what our parents, God, and the rest of the world believes about us. Our distortion is internal, and we need to do something about our misbelief. Most of us need help in this area. Let's now look at the spiritual world. People that we help in prayer resolution often come with a distortion in their spiritual world as well. And we are going to try and help them have a clear understanding of the spiritual world that affects their sense of self-esteem. If we think about it, we have... Uh, in the spiritual world, we have the universe of God's understanding and Satan's understanding and influence. Now, we, as far as we know, Satan's influence is limited to here on earth. Uh, but we are, uh, we are the rope in the tug of war, you could say, between God and Satan. Uh, Satan would love to pull us toward himself, and God says, uh, no, I don't want you to do that. I don't want anyone to perish. I would like everybody to come to saving faith. And beyond that, I would like everybody to come to the knowledge of and the belief of who they are in their heart, from my perspective, not from your distorted, lying, terrible perspective, Satan. We are the prize in this tug of war. And um we need to understand in the spiritual realm that we come into the world as fallen people, thanks to Adam and Eve. Uh, we have inherited that sin nature. And uh, that's pretty evident to us in our own experiences with self and others. Uh, that's not uh, a surprise to us. We, we begin to understand, and particularly as believers, that we are not morally neutral. We're bent towards sin in that early part of our life. Now, that sin, before we're a believer, before we're saved, is a barrier. That sin, after we're a believer, that happens occasionally, is not a barrier to God, because we have acknowledged that Christ's blood is covering those sins. And when we confess, or when we accuse, we're acknowledging that that was something that needed to come under God's judgment and that we're going to let him do that judgment for us. We're accusing properly, we're confessing properly, we're forgiving properly, we're asking for forgiveness. We're doing those things because we're making a stand. We're saying, I don't want to get pulled Satan's way, I want to get pulled God's way, and I have a choice to make. I have a choice to make. So even though we're born with this tendency to sin, when we're saved, the tables are turned. We no longer have to sin. No temptation has come on us except what is common. And God is faithful. He won't let us be tempted beyond what we can bear and provides a way out. There's a way out. But if we say, there's no way out, 
There's no way out. There's no way out. I'm always going to be this. I'm always going to do this. I can't be different. The belief is in our heart. We might know in our head that we can be different, but we believe in our heart that we won't. And this dichotomy, this gap between what we believe and what or what we think and what we believe is where a lot of believers struggle in their post-salvation uh, life, in my opinion. They need the gospel for believers, not just the gospel for non-believers. We might say... Um, Gee, I still sin. Well, yeah. Not as much. And you do feel rotten about it, generally. There I go again. There I go again. I'm so tired of this Heavenly Father. Why do I? Why do I? Why do I? This, that, and the other. And we are recognizing now, as a believer, that we still fall into this. So, so friend, this is the, where we ask. What We know that we're different, but we believe that we're not. We need to get down to this, this issue within us that uh, our beliefs are not in congruence with God's assessment of us. So, the Bible never says that we are puppets, that we are without choice, that we are just being manipulated by God and Satan. Uh-uh. God has said, I want to save you. I want I have a plan for you. It's different from your from the plan I have for Ted. It's different and that's the way I like it. You're going to go places that Ted will never go. You're going to do things that Ted could never do. I like it. I want you to be on my team. We're not a puppet. We're in teamwork with our Heavenly Father. And the sooner we pray through those things from the outer world, the inner world, and the spiritual world that have hindered us from seeing ourselves and valuing ourselves the way God values us, the sooner we're going to be able to live that abundant life that John 10.10 talks about. We want to get there. So people have to take care of their own responses. Now, there are people that do good that are not Christians. You know, you could you could be an atheist and still save somebody from drowning and, and get your face in the paper. That's great. People are doing the right things for good reasons. They just don't have, their belief system is just not as accurate as it needs to be. It matters because the Holy Spirit is the one who helps us with all of these things. So now, as we look at our human situation, our fallen nature in Adam and our saved nature after Christ has saved us, we also want to look at Satan. And so in this tug of war between God and Satan, and we're the prize, we're the rope that they're pulling on, Satan does everything that he can do to win, fairly or or unfairly. The scriptures define Satan as the prince of this world and the evil one. And 
So we understand that he has a certain temporal power and authority that God has given him until God takes the reins back again on those final days, in those final days. How that happened, we're not entirely sure. Why it happened, we're not entirely sure. But we do know that it happens, don't we? We do know that Satan uh, has some power and authority, and we do know things about his basic nature. Uh, He's our enemy. And if we say he's our enemy and believe it, think it up here, but don't believe it in our heart, if we don't understand how he's going to work on us, uh, you know, then then we're easy prey. And that's a good way. We're the, he's the lion looking for some for prey, and and we don't want to be the deer that just says, "Oh, there's a lion. He's getting close. He's getting close. He's getting close." Oh, and now I'm in his mouth. We don't want to be that person. We want to flee the devil. But here's some things we know about him. We don't. We know that he's a liar. I mean, he's all about lies. He's a deceiver. He makes us think other than the truth. He did God really say to you? When, when you read that verse, do you think it really means this? I mean, or does it mean that? He's our accuser. He's the one that when we sin as believers, he goes, Ha ha, gotcha. Yeah, you, maybe you're not a believer. Yeah, you, if you are a believer, you're a sorry version of a believer. He's the accuser. That's his job. That's his job. Are you surprised when he does this? Not God's not doing this. The deceiver is doing this. And he's the blinder of our minds. He wants to distort what we think. He wants to mess with our thinking. He's done it. He did it with our parents. He did it with our grandparents. He did it with our great-grandparents. He's doing it with your children. He's going to do it with your children. He's going to use everything he can to blind our minds and deceive us and accuse us and keep us on our heels. Contrary to what God is doing, saying, you are my daughter, you are my son. I have adopted you. Thanks to Christ, I have adopted. When you call out to me in prayer, believer, your prayer is brought up by the Holy Spirit to the throne and Jesus says, yep, that's from one of mine. And I can do something about that. It's our teamwork as the Godhead with your teamwork by recognizing that you need help when you're being attacked by Satan. Well, so Satan has his roles, his his uh, method of operation, his M.O. He uses feelings of inferiority, inadequacy, and self-belittling to defeat us and prevent us from realizing our full potential. <laughs> Man, lies, bad labels, you're no good, Ted. Well, you're only good for this much. Uh, those kind of things. Other mistruths, wrong assumptions. The only time, Ted, people like you is when you're helping them. Um, feelings of guilt and fear. 
you know, Ted, you've been dealing with this sinner in your life your whole life, and now you're 69 and you're still dealing with it. What is up with you? Confusion and inability to see the truth. I'm just disturbed. I don't know why. I'm just disturbed. It must be because I'm messed up. Satan is working all these feelings of self-hate and self-loathing into his roles as liar, deceiver, accuser, and blinder. Okay. Satan, however, does not possess us. He messes with us, but he does not possess us as believers. Not in the full sense. He can certainly influence us. And you should pray for all of your believing friends. And for us doing this seminar, you should pray for us because Satan is at work interfering with what we're doing here in various kinds of ways. We know that. That's his job. We're not surprised. But he does not possess the believer. He does not make us weak. We make ourselves weak when we believe his lies. He cannot take a step into our lives unless we allow it. We don't want to give, open a door to Satan in our outer world, in our inner world, in the spiritual world. We don't want to open a door because then we've given him permission to be there whether through something significantly occultic or, or just through a lie, a deceptive belief, a misunderstanding that has is at odds with what God says about us. The devil doesn't make us do it. We choose to do it. And the sad thing is when we blame God for our choices. Just like Adam and Eve. Adam said to the God who made him and who gave him Eve, it was that woman that you gave me that deceived me, that caused me to sin. He didn't take ownership of it. He knew what God said. He knew what to eat and what not to eat. And he ate. He chose and he said to God it's that woman that you gave me so that was him giving in to Satan and owning it and giving that foothold so common lies that Satan has are that God's love for you Ted is arbitrary if you do this if you're like that. If you think this, then God will love you. Some Another lie is that I don't have the right for things in life. I can't be happy. I can't be joyful. I can't be loved. I can't be accepted. I can't have a place of value and purpose in life. Another lie is that my life is a burden that needs to be coped with. If I can just get through this day, why is every day a Monday? Oh, my goodness. If 
if my if if this goes according to the story of my life, then something negative is about to happen. Life is a burden that has to be coped with. <clears throat> and on a different kind of tack, if I don't have any difficulties in life, then God has withdrawn his love for me because we all know that we're supposed to struggle as believers. Whoa. Think about that one. God doesn't love or care about or have bless, blessings for me, though he does for others. God is has his favorites. Those are some of the deceptions that Satan loves to play in us. Now, God, let's talk about God moving on in the syllabus. The other end of the rope of the tug of war is God and his kingdom. Now, Satan might be the prince of this world, but it also say, it says that Christ came to, to destroy the works of the devil. Yay! And so, because of Christ, we have forgiveness and adoption as his children, sons and daughters. <clears throat> and we are in God's family and out of the kingdom of darkness. And we can have victory over Satan. We can resist the devil and flee from him, and he will go. So God has provided through Christ all that we need to live a victorious life. Abundant life. The good news for the believer. Not just for the unbeliever, but for the believer. We don't have to just cope, get by with life. We can thrive because of what God has done. And that's what we're aiming for with prayer resolution. <clears throat> In order to have that success, we need to follow God's plan for our lives. And we need to have God's thinking and beliefs within us. Now, I want to take some time to talk about God and His Word, the Bible. I want to make sure and take a little time here. This is important, so please pay attention. We know that uh, God's Word is powerful. He spoke creation into, into being. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and showed us how to live. Is this Word that became flesh the same as the Word of God, the Bible that we read? Some people think of the Bible as being part of the Godhead, a kind of, let's worship the Bible. We need to be careful there. The power of the Bible is not in the ink on the page, but in, in the one who spoke those words to the writers and authors of the Bible. The power of those words is not in the ink on the page, but comes from the one who spoke the words that we read. The mere words or the form of the words do not have power. It's the meaning and the message behind those words in the Bible. So then, we are trusting in 
these words because we trust the process by which they have come to us. And we trust the work of those that have studied them over all these years and um, provide an insight to us. But not everybody looks at it the same way. Do they? Do all pastors see God's word the way God sees his word? Do all believers see God's word the way God sees those words? Have you ever read a passage for the umpteenth time and said, wow, I don't ever remember reading that. It really stuck into you. That's the Holy Spirit working in you to take this moment to expand your thinking and work on your belief using that verse that you've read over and over and over again. God's Word is not a charm. We don't we do sometimes, sadly, recite a verse as kind of little pixie dust. Here, take this verse and you'll feel better in the morning. Ugh. A lot of cheap Christian counsel happening that way. If you just if you just believe this verse, too bad you don't, but if you just believe this verse, you'd be okay. The word is not a charm. It's not an amulet. Keeping it Resting it under your pillow doesn't make it osmosis into you, sink into your life. Just reading it, like you'd read the newspaper, doesn't bring it into your life. You have to apply it. You have to meditate on it. You have to do something with it. Carrying a Bible around doesn't make you more spiritual. Repeating a verse, I have my favorite verses, yeah, but... Am I using them like a mantra? If I just say this verse, I'll be okay. You know, I don't want to be a Buddhist mantra and just recite things. Um, hum, 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 hum. I don't want to do that. It's not an antidote to Satan. It it can be helpful, but it needs to be brought through the Holy Spirit. And what really matters in prayer resolution is that we really listen to people. We really help them understand where their belief systems are goofed up. The true power comes when we memorize scripture. That's fine, but just knowing a verse doesn't make it powerful in your life. If all you can do is spit it out, how do you apply that verse to your life? Does it apply to your life? Was it written for you? That's a good question. Or was it written for somebody else? That's a very good question. Oh, I don't know why that's in the Bible. Well, then you better pay attention there because maybe the next time you read it, God's going to say, see, there we go. That's important. The true power of the Word is that they are available to us and used by the Holy Spirit that we received at salvation and only believers receive at salvation. God can use the Word to help a non-believer, yes. But the real value for us, the abundant life comes when we let the Holy Spirit take that word and chew it up and massage it. And as was said in the Bible, we want to be done with just drinking milk. We're not breastfeeding in the word anymore. We want to get to the meat of the word. We want to be deep in the word. 
And that takes work. And we have to confront our misunderstandings. We have to if we're going to be that kind of believer. And God wants us to be that kind of believer. He's pulling on the rope. I want you to be that kind of believer, Tip. I want you to be that kind of believer. Work with me here. Work with me here. Well, we talked about distorted messages. So, we get those from certain pastors. We get those from friends. We get those from our own misconstrued understandings of life. And so, we can easily take the word out of context. The easiest way to start a cult is to just use one verse and not think about it. Oh. And not compare it with the rest of the Bible. And not take it up to a multitude of counselors. And not think about it and pray about it and ask the Holy Spirit, is this really what that says? We have God on our side, on our team. But He's not a magician. He's not a magician. He just isn't going to it's all better. He engages us. He honors that we start from where we start and we're moving toward Him and bringing other people along with us. But He takes us, excuse me, He takes us where we are, starts there, and helps us along the path to get footing, to deal with the things that are, get in the way. Unique to me today, unique to you today, and take those on. But he's not a, mad, a magician. The consequences of sin, the consequences of misbeliefs, the consequences of lies linger until we take care of them. And so he will release us from those misunderstandings. He will release us from those emotions. He will release us from those memories. But only when we ask. Because he's a gentleman about that. He wants our partnership with him. So, we relate to God and his word from that perspective, human perspective, and God honors that. Some people look at one verse or one passage and they see only God condemning the world. <laughs> And other people look at that and see God's love and generosity in it. And those two people go, what's the matter with you? And so believers, we allow, we allow those other believers around us to grow toward God. We can say to them, not, we don't have to say to them, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're in the wrong denomination. You're in the wrong church. You're in the wrong pew. You're in the one. We don't have to do that. We can just say, like Paul said, well, if they don't believe that way, uh, maybe God will yet change their mind. It's up to God. And we can help people that we are working with, we're talking with on the park bench. We can help them with their misgivings and misbeliefs, and we can do the same within ourselves. All right. Lastly, we need to understand that in this battle over our lives, that God is the ultimate winner. You're on the right team, believer. It's not always easy. Yes, there are battles. There are. Satan doesn't give up just because you're a believer. He doesn't turn his back on you. In fact, he kind of thinks, gee, 
If I could get Ted to do something really rotten in front of all these people, that would be really good. That would help my cause. Hmm. Yeah, it would. So, we know that Satan is not going to help us resolve these misunderstandings and misbeliefs. He's, it's not in his job description. His job description is to lie, deceive, accuse, and confuse. But God, our Father, is the one who has the power and the authority to resolve these problems. He brings the re resolution as our Father. That's why we pray to our Father. He works according to His character. He's consistently working within His character. He works according to His own standards and protocol. And He works through effective prayer. That's why we're studying all of these components with you. So in summary, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and instruction or training in right living. So, that you, believer, may be fully, fully qualified and equipped to do every kind of good deed. Second Timothy 3.16 and 17 It's useful for truth, teaching truth, rebuking error, correcting faults, training for righteous living so that you will be fully qualified and equipped to take on the outer world, the inner world, and the spiritual world. When we relate to God, we always relate to Him out of our own humanness. He's okay with that because we're made in His image. He loves when we bring us uniquely to Him. The resolution that we're seeking comes when we identify the hurt, the wrong belief, and we bring it to our Father we accuse who we need to accuse. We confess what we need to confess. We take care of these issues and we bring them to him in a proper way. That's the end of this part of the topic. There's other material in your syllabus. And now I'll turn it over to Deb again to tell you about the steps. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, Ted, for sharing about the sources of self-esteem from the outer world um, and how the things around us affect us to the inner world and how that affects um, our self-esteem. And now we're going to talk about how do we resolve our self unhealthy self-esteem. And this is on page 128 
in your syllabus. When we think about resolving these issues of unhealthy self-esteem, um, it's kind of like, um, okay, you get a rock in your shoe. You limp. Do you take it out or do you leave it in? If you leave it in, you keep limping and you develop a limp. Maybe you're not even aware there's a rock in your shoe because you have no feeling in that area. And it's not until someone else points it out that you realize you're limping. Now we're starting, we're dealing with belief systems, things that are hidden inside um, that um, we're not even conscious of them, but we are now asking God to help us change what was normal for us because of the lies and the mistruths that we have believed about ourselves and that have affected how we have viewed ourselves. So it's kind of like um, a person who has had a bad hip for 10 years. They've lived with the pain, they've limped along, and they just um, have learned to live with it. Finally, they get a new hip. It's replaced. So the pain is gone, it is healed from the surgery, and yet they're still walking with the limp. There's a deep down muscle memory that says this is how you walk because you've been doing it for 10 years. So it takes a physical therapist or someone to come behind them and say, okay, this is what you have to do to retrain yourself on how to walk straight without the limp. And that's what we're asking God to do is to help them walk in a new way without the limp that they have acquired. We are helping a hurting one unravel the story that they've always told about themselves and asking the question, is this God's perspective on how God views you? We want to help them to put on the new, to get rid of the old and to put on the new. Or as Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, we're supposed to transform our minds. We're asking God to dig deep within to help us to become the person that he desires and designed us to be. As we put off these unhealthy self-esteem issues and become the unique, one-of-a-kind person that he created us to be. So like I said, we're dealing with our belief system. What is it that we believe about ourselves? Remember that we act out of what we believe. Now, we know what we're supposed to do, and we can perform for a while and act the way that we know we're supposed to. But then we lose our place in the performance and revert back to what we believe. And we're trying to get rid of the unhealthy beliefs and believe what God wants us to believe. So just as we've talked about with the lies, there are steps that we take. Now, again, it's important to remember that I can't just place a truth on top of the lie. Yes, I believe this lie, but this is the truth. That's living how we know we should live, but it's not getting rid of the belief underneath. A truth will replace a lie but a truth will not displace a lie. So we have to get rid of the lie first and then ask the Heavenly Father to give us a truth to replace that lie. 
And it's when we begin to live out that truth that people will notice that we have really changed. So the first thing we need to do is, again, understand the issue. What is the unhealthy self-esteem behavior that I've had? How am I living in an unhealthy way? What is the lie that I have believed? And so we make sure that we understand it clearly. And if there's somebody that we need to accuse of either giving us that lie or doing something that we, we they acted and I interpreted, well, their action, I don't accuse them of my interpretation, but how they acted, I accuse them um, of it and I choose to forgive, ask for justice. Then I confess my part that I believed that to be true. I took that on and I confess how believing that lie has affected my life and how it has affected other people's lives. Because of my behavior, how has that affected others? I confess that I believed that, so for example, somebody believes they can't do anything right. Was it a parent, a teacher, being critical, not accepting me for who I am? And so therefore, that's what I accuse them of, of the actions of their criticism, of not accepting me for who I am. Then I confess that I believed that I couldn't do anything right. So I didn't try. I didn't apply myself, nor did I use the talents that God had given me. And I confess that to him. And I ask for, and I receive his forgiveness. Now I need to reject the lie that I have believed. I take my stand against it. I say it out loud. I reject this lie that I can do nothing right. Satan needs to hear it. God wants to hear it. And when we say it out loud, it reinforces that we really mean it. Then I ask God to break the power behind that lie as I have lived it out. It's had power in my life. It has affected the way I live. And God is strong enough to break that power. I'm not, but God is. Then I ask God to, for a truth to replace this lie. Not just a general truth, but a truth to replace the lie that I'm not good enough. I can't do anything right. And I wait. And we sit in silence. And we pray. And we allow the Holy Spirit. Then we discuss what was the image. What was the song? How does that apply to the truth or to the lie? How, what is the truth that comes out of that? How is that a truth for you specifically? And when we may, when we know that the hurting one understands the truth. Now we don't tell them what the truth means. We ask questions to allow them to, um, decipher that for themselves. And Sometimes maybe there's a very bright spot that, of word of truth that God has given you. And after they have gone through, you can share what God gave you too and add to it. But they're the ones that have to hear the truth. They can't get it from somebody else. They have to hear it from God and know that God has given them that truth. And it's a truth 
about them. And it is theirs. Then they tell the father that they believe the truth is from them, from him, and they accept it. And ask him to make it a part of their lives so that they live it out. That they want to live this way under the truth. And acknowledge that it is from the Father and it is about them. Truth comes from the Word of God. But hurting ones sometimes cannot perceive the truth or the lie for themselves. And that's where we as safe others come in to help them along that path. And it may take time. But we let them hear the truth. And sometimes they say, oh, I'm not, I I don't think I'm getting a truth. Well, what's the picture in your mind? What are the words in your mind? And they'll say what they are. And then slowly but surely, the truth about that picture begins to dawn on them. Every lie or every, every lie needs a specific truth. It needs to be countered with the truth so we have something new to live with. Now, truth, again, comes in many ways. It comes through scripture, a song, a picture. There's lots of ways that it can come. Once we have rid ourselves of the lies, then we're free to accept the truth. And the acceptance of the truth is what sets us free. Free to decode and receive other truths that God has for us and how he wants to live, us to live for him, and how he wants to communicate with us. It's out of these truths that God is able to have input into our lives and into our self-esteem, as we're talking about here. So we've talked about early on getting rid of the stuff and the events in our lives, and now we're allowing God to replace the things that we have misbelieved in our life with truth, so that we can begin to build a healthy self-esteem. Our job, so to speak, is to exercise these truths as often as possible. We encourage the hurting one to